You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Well, uh, hello. Um, thanks for those kind words, Jimmy. I'm not sure I have a superior intellect. I think maybe I just do things at a different pace. Jimmy's a bit more slow and steady and uh, eventually gets the job done. Maybe I just go a little bit quicker, so... But uh, th- thanks, thanks for having me. Um, I'm really honoured to be here with you all, and uh, it's a, it really is a privilege to be able to open up the Word of God with you. So let me um, just quickly pray, and then we'll jump into Psalm 145. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word, and we pray that we would be continually shaped by it, continually learn from it, and continually nourished by it through your Spirit. We pray that we would praise and bless your name forever and ever, We thank you that you are the proper and good King. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we frequently hear the idea that God is King, is the King. This is certainly true, but what type of King is He? What does it actually mean to be a King? And how are we supposed to act towards God, our King? If we went around the room today, I'm sure that we would... uh, hear a lot of different ideas. People would have different imagery that springs to mind about what a king might be or what a king might look like. Some ideas that might come out are uh, someone who's strong, powerful, who's respected, someone who is noble, someone who comes from a good bloodline, someone with considerable wealth, who can fight or is a warrior, who's politically minded. Um, Maybe you construct your definition of what a king is from different stories which you've seen or heard. A movie from my childhood which has a king in it is the uh, cartoon version of Robin Hood. Uh, the rightful king is away taking care of uh, business for the kingdom and Prince John, his little brother, comes onto the scene. He happily takes all the power, prestige and wealth but neglects all the responsibility to the people in his kingdom. In fact, not only does he neglect his responsibilities to them, he imposes ridiculously high taxes which causes the people to starve. And if they can't pay their taxes, he throws them in jail. And further, when he's faced with difficult situations, he retreats, hides, and sucks his thumb like a child. Certainly not a good king for a number of reasons, right? He's taken the throne when it really isn't his. He's completely selfish. He has no compassion for his people. And he's a coward. Another example of a king is Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. Has everyone seen the movie Lord of the Rings? Yeah, some awesome movies. Um, in the story, evil's everywhere, right? There's all these like, crazy different creatures, and humanity needs someone to lead them in the battle against evil. Aragorn is the rightful king, and he does eventually take on this responsibility, and he fights all the evil uh, things, he defeats them, and he unites everyone, and, and everything's good. However, before Aragon is king, he knows that terrible things are happening, but he chooses to exile himself. He's battling with internal things, um, goes from his past and from his uh, previous forefathers. And, and, and that's difficult to deal with, but still he neglects his responsibility to his people. It's a, it shows a type of, of cowardice. Um, now, I don't want to judge him too harshly, I certainly wouldn't be standing too tall in front of a cave troll. 
Uh, maybe Rodney would fend better. Like he's like a pretty big, strong guy. I, I'd, I'd like to watch you fight a cave troll, actually. Like, I'd go to that. That'd be pretty cool. Um, but bravery in, in battle isn't his problem, right? It, it's not Aragon's problem. It's fear of failing, which causes him to neglect his people who he's meant to care for. If we look at some real historical figures, some real historical kings, the picture gets pretty dark pretty quickly. Alexander the Great was a king of ancient Greece, and he spent basically his whole rule on military campaign through Asia and northern Africa. He created one of the largest empires in the ancient world. He was undefeated in battle and is considered one of the greatest military leaders in history. He oozes power, might, strength, respect, all good attributes. But on the other side of the coin, Alexander the Great annihilated people. Um, If they didn't choose to cooperate with him, he just annihilated them. And if they did choose to cooperate, he completely diluted their culture, who they were, and infused Greek culture. They were allowed to survive, but they weren't high-ranking citizens in his kingdom. They were there to continue supplying his army, continue pushing his army to the ends of the earth, which is his goal. And if these people decided to stop supplying the army, previously they'd been cooperating, now they decide to stop, of course, you can guess, they met uh, a quick death. Even Alexander the Great's, Great's own people, his own high-ranking officials, were not safe. If they had an opinion that was different to his, they would meet a quick death, and at times in horrific ways. Alexander the Great, yes, was strong and powerful, like kingly attributes, you might say. But how is this helpful, how is this good, if you don't even care for your own people, if all you care about is expanding your territories? How is it good if you murder your own people, the people who are close to you, for disagreeing with you? And how does a king who's always away from home at war care for his people back at home? How does he nourish them, feed the hungry, give peace to the mourner? He can't. Although Alexander the Great is not Prince John, the false king from Robin Hood who sucks his thumb, he completely lacks compassion, tenderness. It's said that the one time that he did return from war, from one of his campaigns, was because basically his army kept complaining of homesickness. Like he has no regard for the well-being of his army that are going out there. They're complaining of homesickness so much that he decides to turn back. But in his mind, it's just about growing his territory, feeding his greed. And you know what? He did, like I said, create one of the biggest kingdoms in, in the ancient world, one of the biggest empires. But you know what? Eventually, that kingdom fell apart. It didn't last. Genghis Khan, literally translated ruler of all, was also crazed with expanding his empire. He was strong, powerful, respected, brilliant in battle, but completely cruel. There's stories about him melting down metals and pouring them into the ears and eyes of the leaders from the other armies once he defeated them. Like, it's gruesome, right? It's horrible. It's horrible. He would boil people alive, and it's estimated that he killed over 40 million people in his conquest. So again, yes, powerful, but bloodthirsty. And like Alexander the Great, his kingdom, this massive empire, failed. It died. A final example of a king, a human king, is King David from the Bible. He's a great king, one to be replicated in many ways. He's said to be a man after God's own heart, and 
uh, he's, he's like fingerprints are all over the book of Psalms that you guys have uh, been working through. He uh, is a great warrior. He serves his people. He's merciful. He has many characteristics which make a great king. But he's not perfect. Even though he's recognized as one of the greatest kings of Israel, he's not perfect. In 2 Samuel 11, we read the story about how David sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof. Bathsheba is one of his best friend's wives, right? one of his mighty men's wives, one of his closest friends, closest warriors. He sleeps with her, she becomes pregnant, and to cover up the whole situation, he ends up murdering his best friend. Pretty, like, pr- a pretty incriminating story, right? Like, um, cast David in not such a great light, but he is one of the great kings, so we can see that uh, human kings don't, don't cut it, no matter how good they are. So then, our understanding of what a king may look like is certainly tainted by the reality of what we've seen. When we look at earthly kings or mythical kings, they're far from perfect, unable to carry out many things which we should expect from one. But God, God is the good and proper king, holding greatness and compassion together, holding strength and mercy together, holding firm responsibility and gentleness together. And he alone is worthy of our praise. The poet who pens Psalm 145 masterly presents who God is as king. And there's a beautiful completeness, a beautiful richness to the kingly character which he um, displays in the text. So let's get into it a little bit and unpack it. Firstly, as a bit of a side note, the psalm was one of the most recited psalms by Jewish communities. It was recited as much as the great Shema at certain times. And the great Shema is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This, this is quoted uh, or recited three times a day. And at times in history, Psalm 145 is quoted the same amount of times. So it's very important in uh, the devotional life of those communities. So if you're um, looking for something to read daily, maybe this is something you can go to for a little while to uh, enrich, your, enrich your devotional life. And actually, the author wanted it to be this way. So something that we, that we miss is that this psalm is an acrostic. It starts each new verse with the Hebrew alphabet, with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And that's a very common tool that Hebrew authors, Hebrew writers use to help their readers commit content to memory. So that, that bit of information is a little bit lost on us, um, but it was an original intention for the text. Okay? So uh, please, please keep your Bibles open and, and follow along. Um, so what does the psalm tell us about God being the good and proper king who is alone worthy of praise? What gives God this status according to the psalmist? Well, the psalm in verses 1 and 2 begins with the author saying, I will praise and bless God's name forever and ever. He repeats those words in both Psalms 1 and 2. Praise, bless God's name forever and ever. So we see the intention of the author clearly, that as an individual, he is going to praise and bless God's name forever and ever. Also, the author states in verse 1 that God is the king. It says, I will exalt you, my God, the king. Not a king, not one of many among the likes of Prince John the Imposter, Aragon, Alexander the Great, or Genghis Khan, ones who have resembled some form of greatness but inevitably have passed into history, but the king who is living and who will endure forever. There is no other king like God. 
The psalmist goes on to tell us the reason for his enduring commitment to God in verses 3 to 9. In verse 3, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. You'll notice that the author repeats words a lot that he wants to draw our attention to. So he's repeating the word great in this. He's wanting us to see that God is great. And he's great, so he's going to praise and bless God's name forever and ever. In verses 4 to 7, he unpacks this greatness. In verse 4, one generation commends the works of God to the next. They tell of his mighty acts. In verse 5, they speak of the glorious splendor of God's majesty, and the psalmist will meditate on God's wonderful works. And in verse 6, the psalmist and future generations, God's covenant people, will tell of his awesome deeds and greatness. God is great because of his previous acts, because of what he's done. That's what the psalmist is saying here. I'll praise you because of your mighty acts, what you've done in the past. Now, he doesn't tell us what those mighty acts are, but we know what they are because we have the rest of the Bible to uh, return to. Um, a mighty act of God is when he delivers Israel from Egypt and parts the Red Sea. A mighty act is when God leads Israel through the wilderness and provides them with food and water. Another mighty act is when God gave Israel the law and set them apart as his holy nation, as his covenant people. God provided a way for the Israelites to be healed from snakes because of their sin in Numbers 11. God continually delivers Israel from the clutches of death. Those are his mighty actions. That is what his greatness is based upon. It's not based upon blood and bones like Genghis Khan's throne. His throne is based on justice, justice righteousness, and mercy and goodness, right? Um, God's abundant goodness as king should be celebrated. And, and here he's sort of pushing us towards that, the psalmist. God, again, to refer back to Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great, he's not trying to build himself an empire here. That's not what the psalmist is saying. Oh, we, God is great because look how much land he's accrued. God is great because of his mercy and compassion. Quite a different image to what we've seen with the, with the human kings, right? We're painting a very, very different picture. Verse 8 and 9 continues to paint this picture of God as a merciful king. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. God the King is not quick to violence, brutality and to conquer. Actually, he's slow to anger and he's rich in love. He's good to all and he has compassion on all that he has made. And he has made all, right? God has made all, which means actually his love and mercy extend not just to his kin, not just to his family as maybe you would expect. Actually, it, it extends to everyone. God does not discriminate based on social status, gender, race, intelligence, athletic ability, whether or not you can fight a cave troll like Rodney, or whether you take sugar in your coffee or not, which is a big no-no, guys. That's a, it's a big no-no. Um, he is good to all that he has made, and he is good to all. There is a distinct difference between God's greatness and the greatness of the worldly kings. As I've said a couple of times, God's greatness is based for the psalmist in his mercy, and being the proper king, God doesn't need to expand his territory because he's made all. All of the heavens and earth 
are his. Verse 10 is a little bit of a summary of the previous verses, and it acts as a type of refrain back to verse 1, where, remember, the psalmist is going to praise and bless God's name forever and ever. Verse 10 starts by saying that all God's, work praise, all God's works praise him. All of God's saving actions that we've spoken about before praise him. All of his actions towards Israel praise him. And these actions are passed on from one generation to the next. They continue to praise him, enduring forever and ever. The second part of verse 10, like I said, recalls verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, I will praise and bless your name forever and ever. Here in verse 10, all of God's covenant people join together, God's covenant people being Israel, join together to praise God the King. Your faithful will bless you, not just me anymore. Your faithful, your covenant will bless you. God will be praised as King by the psalmist and the covenant people based on his wonderful works. His wonderful works of love and mercy, which he's rich and abundant in, not his throne of blood and bones. The psalm continues. Verse 11 and 13 are very, very cleverly constructed. We, we know that the psalmist likes to use repetition of words to draw your attention to ideas and themes in them, right? So see if you can hear any repetition in the words of these verses. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. Of course, reading it with that type of emphasis is a, is a little bit ridiculous and over the top, uh, but you, you can see that that word continuing to emerge. He's trying to push us in that direction. And there's uh, another thing that we, we miss here, Remember how I said at the start the, the psalm is an acrostic which works through the Hebrew alphabet? Well, the three letters which start these verses are the Hebrew letters, our equivalent M, L, and C. Those words together, if you can guess, spell the word king. Right? So those verses, Melech, spell the word king, and then we see king, king, king all through the verses. He wants us to know here that God is the king and his kingdom is glorious, right? He wants us to see that. He's pointing us towards it so strongly. So the king and kingdom completely dominate this section. And the psalmist, along with the covenant people, like we saw in verse 10, are celebrating God's kingship and his everlasting kingdom. Celebrating the kingdom's glory and God's power and might. Telling their children about it. Stating that God's kingdom and reign will last forever and ever. We're seeing, right? We're seeing the jarring difference between God as king and earthly kings. His rule is based on love and mercy, not on bones and blood. And his kingdom, unlike other empires, will last forever and ever. The psalmist continues to give us reasons as to why God is the worthy king throughout verses 20, uh, 14 to 20. These, dis, these are descriptions of God's actions uh, as a king, and it further paints the picture and enhances how we see God as king. God supports or holds up all who fall and lifts up those who are bowed down. He feeds his people at the proper time. He nourishes them. He is righteous. He acts rightly in all things. He is near. We're getting that picture, right? He has to be near to you to pick you up. has to be near to you to feed you. 
He's near to you. He's not a king unreachable by his people in his ivory tower sitting on his throne. He's close. In Exodus 13, in Exodus 33, sorry, there's this beautiful imagery about how the Lord comes and dwells on the tent with Moses, and Moses is face to face with God as a friend is with another friend. Panim el Panim is the Hebrew. He's face to face. It's beautiful imagery. God fulfills his people. He saves those who cry out to them, him, and he watches over all who love him. God is certainly a good king, full of mercy, full of love. He's gracious, and you know what? He's made all, and that extends to everyone. It's this beautiful, rich image. Then we get to the second half of verse 20. But all the wicked he will destroy. Throughout this whole psalm, we get a picture of a merciful, compassionate king, right? who cares for his people, picks his people up, feeds his people. And you know what? In, in some people's minds, this might even be an image of a weak king. We haven't heard of a king who fights, who like, protects his land with, you know, with the sword. And, and that's a lot of imagery that comes to mind, especially when we think of kings of the past and, and what we see in, in fairy tales. But actually, no. God is a fierce king as well. Not a king who would act harshly. Remember, his love is for all, all who choose the good, all who choose to become his children. But for those who continue to choose wickedness, who continue to choose evil, to continue to choose blood and bones rather than love and mercy, they will be destroyed. Right? It adds a bit of a harsh, complex tone to the picture of God's kingship but it is, it is a reality. But even when we see it in the, that light, it's completely different, right? God's not destroying for the sake of it. Actually, he wants everyone to choose, the, choose love, choose the good. And those who don't choose it, unfortunately, will perish because of their own folly. We can see the difference between God's destruction and the destruction of Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan comes to dominate and destroy, taking everything you have for himself. But God says, actually, you have nothing. You should have no privilege, but you are welcome. And more than that, you will inherit everything. You will become a part of my family. You will sit in the privileged position as a, my child, as my son or daughter. There's no greater honor than this. God doesn't say, like Alexander the Great, I'll let you live, but you supply my army so I can keep moving. No, he says, I need nothing from you and you have nothing to give me, but I have everything to give you, the inheritance of a child of the king. It's amazing, right? It's an amazing, beautiful imagery. And it's not just imagery, like it's poetic and it, it is full of images, but it's reality as well, right? This is real. This is what we have through God, through Christ. Further, let's always remember, and the psalmist has said this, that God acts righteously. Even an act which, of destruction is a rightful act, and he's given every opportunity to choose the love. Verse 21 ends the psalm, and it gives us a, another repeat of verse 1, another refrain, like coming back to that melody line. In verse 1, the psalmist is praising and blessing God's name forever and ever. The psalmist, just the individual. In verse 10, the covenant community is blessing and praising God's name forever and ever. 
Here in verse Psalmer, in, in sorry, here in verse 21, the psalmist, as well as every creature, all flesh is to praise and bless God's name forever and ever. The psalmist tells us why God is worthy to be praised as king. He's great and compassionate, strong and merciful, takes firm action, and is gentle. He chooses the good, not the evil. The perfect king expressed masterfully in this psalm. The book of Psalms is comprised of five books. It's, I can see it's actually on those little handouts that you have, the, the breakup of the five books. And each of the book, uh, books has a distinctive message within them. Okay? Book one is very positive about God's relationship to Israel and the king. And Israel continues to prosper and go, grow. We can think of Solomon's kingdom, how big and great and expansive it was. In book two, attention begins to arise and there's like issues between God and Israel and the king due to Israel's disobedience. In book three, the relationship is fractured and Israel's captured by other nations, exiled. They continually cry out to God to deliver them, to no longer hide his face, to come near to them. Remember, to come to the tent and be face to face like a friend, that's not there anymore. And they continue to ask, oh God, how long will you hide your face from me? In book four, the relationship's restored, but it's different. God is declared as king. God is the reigning king. And things are not quite how they once were. Israel's not as prosperous, and they long to be in that situation that they were before. And in book five, where Psalm 145, this psalm is located, there's hope for that future restoration. They're hoping for a future king to come and lead Israel to prosperity, for a new human king to take the throne, be like David, be like Solomon, and help them to prosper. Well, this hope for a new king who would save them, a hope for a Messiah, comes true. But this king is not born in a regal setting. He's born in a manger. He's not a great military leader who takes on Rome and like, makes Israel the powerhouse, the power empire. No, actually, he lays down his life. Jesus is the coming king who makes a way for everyone to be saved from their sins. Let me tell you a little story. It's a little bit gross, okay, just as a heads up. I remember a couple of years ago, I was uh, asked to act as a wise man at the Wyndham Carols by Candlelight. I said yes, because a year before I'd done it, and I'd got to ride a camel around, and it was like, it was completely awesome. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to ride a camel again. This year I went, I was like all excited about getting on the camel, and they're like, oh, you're not riding a camel this year, you're going to be carrying this little baby goat, the poor, the poor thing, and you're going to carry it, and all the kids are going to pet it while you're, while you're carrying it. This little baby goat was stressed out of its mind, and I noticed that it felt quite full, the goat, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, the, the kids were petting the goat, and uh, I, I'd been given an outfit to look like a, to look like a wise man, um, and a bit shepherdy and whatever, the else, whatever else, and, and I realized the shoes I was wearing weren't particularly authentic. They were like you know, very, very, quite modern. So I was like, you know, I'm going to go barefoot. I'm going to like really um, go for this and like support the cause and really get into character. Well, as you may have guessed, the little baby goat urinated all over me. Like, and it was a lot of urine. I can't believe it was holding that much in its body. Like, it was honestly a lot. 
I went back to take the, the goat and give it back to the, the carers, the animal guys, and I could smell something. And I looked down and I realized, actually, I was stepping all through camel poo. So, like, I had goat urine and camel poo all over me. Ne- needless to say, I really, I really needed a shower. Now, I don't tell that story just, like, for a gross story. But actually, remember, Jesus was born in a manger in a stable, right, with animals around him. That's how humble the king of the universe, the great king of the universe, all strength, power, and might, that's where he's born. Incredible, right? Incredible. The humblest of births. He lives and then dies the most humiliating death, right? Crucifixion in the ancient world, it it was excruciating. On top of that, it was completely humiliating. The worst way to die. You are the worst person in society, If you die like that, a a Roman would never be executed. An actual Roman citizen was too humiliating. It was reserved for people who were beneath them. That's how the king of the universe dies. But of course, he rises again. God defeats wickedness, right? Jesus defeats wickedness. Jesus defeats sin and death, and he rises again, right? It's his own blood and bones. He's not making someone else do it. He's the spotless sacrifice, and he defeats sin and death. He defeats wickedness, destroys wickedness, so that we could live as his children. Remember, we're not like on the periphery, like trying to get some food scraps from the table. We're seated at the table, right? We're right there. We're his children. We have inherited everything. Jesus, the servant king, the king who came as a servant, the lion who looked like a lamb, the lamb who looked like a lion, is like this amazing imagery about Jesus, the king that he was, came near to us in a new way. The psalm says God come near to us and they've experienced God's nearness, but Jesus, is it's a whole new level. Actually, I can look at Jesus, not me personally, but Jesus was in flesh and we can look in his eyes. He's a, he was a man. He comes close to us, stands face to face, panim el panim, as a friend. He defeats evil and wickedness in a way we never could. So when we praise God as our King forever and ever, we praise Jesus, bless and praise Jesus as King forever and ever. Jesus is that King. My prayer for all of us, including myself, is that we would remember who Jesus is, that he is our king, and that we would place him as king in our lives, remembering to bless and praise his name forever and ever. Jesus is the good and proper king who we've always, always needed, and we have been gifted with him. Amen.